how many of them actually do that? I think half of them actually reform and half of them just find it's not fun anymore. So the success rate is around 50%. <laughs> Hello, a quick note from the One Team Gov show. Unfortunately, the audio quality on this episode is not brilliant. We were recording at a conference and there is quite a bit of background noise. Fortunately, we have a transcript available online. If you click into the description of this episode, you can follow the link and read along there. Sorry, we'll make sure it doesn't happen again. Hello and welcome to the One Team Gov show, a podcast featuring conversations with awesome people doing interesting stuff in the public sector. We appreciate you taking the time to join us, and we have an amazing interview we know you're going to love. My name is Kylie. And I'm Kamala, and today we're talking with Minister Audrey Tang, who is the Digital Minister for Taiwan. Welcome, Audrey. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to One Team God. We are at the Forward 50 Conference here in Ottawa. It's snowing outside, so we've had a typical Canadian welcome. How have your past few days been? It's really, really good. For this visit, we first stopped by in Toronto and held a two-day workshop with people from the Ontario government, just civic tech people in Toronto, Toronto City, civil society organizations on the V-Taiwan method and the open government approach that we take in Taiwan. So we chose a topic that's common to Taiwan and Ontario, which is ride-sharing, Uber and Lyft and taxis and how we can work with different sectors and make the transportation better in a way that's more fair and accessible to people. And so the worship went really well because we noticed that people are sitting next to their kids. And the first thing that we did at workshop is to say, if you know anyone from your table, you have to move your table. It is a very mixed audience in each table, and we use dynamic facilitation. We use a lot of digital enablement technologies to make sure that people are really focused on the conversation. And by the end of it, people really said it's one of the rare moments where they really talk across sectors and across levels of government and really make the things tick despite the different sectors that you're in. And that's, I think, also one thing about Absolutely. Yes, that's really in line with our principles and our mission for the world of government. So that's great to hear. In the tech world, you're obviously really well known for the work you've done in the open source community. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came about? In 1996, I was 15 years old, second year in junior high, and I discovered this World Web thing where people just put a preprint research papers on it. And so I told my teachers that I want to drop out of junior high school because my textbooks are all out of date. And I can just email any author and they don't know I'm just 14 or 15 years old and we just start research together. And so I run into this Internet Society, the Internet Engineering Task Force and the World Web Foundation and those people who could create to make world free of direct vertical power relationship. It's entirely voluntary association. So that's the only political system I know is a 14 years old. And it will be another six years before I get my voting right in representative democracy. I started in internet governance and really contributed to the Perl community, which was like the only language to write a website in back in 1996. I started quite a few startups and contributed directly to the Perl language and later also the Haskell language, which I used to help Larry Waugh to rewrite Perl 6, which is now getting a new name called Raku. You mentioned that you started a couple of organizations and companies. Can you explain a little more? Back in 1996, during the initial dot-com boom, I co-founded a technology company called Inforian, that instant messaging, social networking, online auction. We're one of the first online auction sites in Taiwan. 
went pretty well. We got invested by Intel and things like that. And so we did my first entrepreneurship purely for the fun of it. But then later on, I discovered the free software movement and also the responsibility that we have as programmers to ensure a world that is more fair. I participated in the initial rephrasing of the free software movement into the open source movement, which is a marketing approach to get large corporations <laughs> to become essentially social enterprises by donating, for example, the Netscape source code, which turned into Firefox and so on. I really enjoyed working in the open source community with a aim towards software freedom because to me it really bridges the two worlds. It's not enterprise for profits versus freedom and human right. It is enabling people to work with a, a solid, sustainable business model, but also enables people to work full-time on open source and our contributions. So we really bootstrapped an ecosystem back around the turn of the century in Taiwan, and I founded quite a few social enterprises toward that period. And finally, we landed on what we call Open Foundry, which is a state-sponsored open source collaboration. It's a kind of pre-GitHub, and then we develop a lot of distributed version control systems to enable pull requests like workflows. And so when I did the six implementation called Hugs, I did this thing called Radical Trust, where anyone will complain anything about our language, about our way of implementing the language automatically get a commitment, meaning that they can write directly to the repository. And we're just handing out commitments like crazy and to the creator of Python, you know, to people's newborn babies and things like that. And it's pure anarchy and it really, really works because we say move at a speed of trust and we have to optimize for fun because it's a decade-long project. If we don't optimize for fun, we don't sustain ourselves very well. Optimize for fun, I think I should make that into a sticker. It's written dash big O F U N. It is actually a meme we printed on t-shirts. Oh, stuff. perfect. Yeah. I'll have to get one. You mentioned fun and having this amazing time working across lots of different organizations and yes. open source. You lived a lot of people's dream, I think, in retiring from private sector at oh, yeah. the age of 33. Yes. How did you make that decision? Just become kind of financially independent, right? <laughs> I worked in quite a few open source organizations that later turned into social enterprises and one of them is social text which is a bunch of early pearl hackers that tries to sell wikis and social media into the enterprise so we don't call ourselves social enterprise we call ourselves enterprise social <laughs> which is the way to manage large siloed companies by getting everybody on a nowadays we call a slack channel to get people to share their organizational wisdom on the internal chat rooms internal collaborative spreadsheets and wikis and things like that and basically make the silos uh, more horizontal in the process. We're the wiki company, and once we get acquired by People Fluent, which is one of the largest HR companies, just stay for the company for another couple of years, training uh, new people, and just retire from the private sector to work full-time on public good, and especially on the GovZero movement, which was just starting around 2012, and I joined in 2013. And the GovZero movement, very simply put, is a domain name called G0V.TW. And if you see any public service that you don't like, which all end in GOV.TW, right? You can just change it to a zero and get into the shadow government, which is built by the city tech people. And you don't have to Google for it. You just use whatever 
the government services and change it to a zero to get into the interactive open data, much more fun version of government. And the best thing about this forking the government's movement is that it is entirely a min, right? So just last week, budget budget.g0v.it gets formed. We have got zero Italy. And so it's just a domain name. We don't hold a patent or anything on it. And so people just create just visualization of budgets, visualization of environment and so on, and relinquish a copyright. So by the next procurement site, the government, if they really like the idea, it just becomes the government website. Wow, that sounds so cool. I wonder if that's the case for gov.uk. I wonder if there's a, a shadow version of that. We should try it. Yeah, please do. <laughs> yeah, since then, you've joined the Taiwanese government and you've become one of Taiwan's youngest ministers at the age of 36. Have you spotted any major differences in terms of a generational gap? Well, yes, because we are really the first generation that can actually do democracy. Taiwan was under military rule until 1987. And so after the lifting of the martial law and the first presidential election in 1996, which coincides with the popularization of the Royal Web, we're the first generation that can do democracy and we're the first generation that are digital natives. And so in many older republics, the people who are interested in public administration and democracy is one kind of people, and people who are into design and digital is another kind of people. But in Taiwan, it's the same generation. And so we really get a lot of leeway in experimenting because for us, direct democracy, deliberative democracy, representative democracy, they're all just 20 years old. <laughs> we don't have 200 years of a parliamentary tradition to try with. So we try with a lot of hybrid forms of democracy because we started relatively early. You can find it also in Estonia and to a lesser degree in Spain also. Yeah, touching on that transition from military rule to democracy, which happened recently, as you were saying, we read that you were heavily involved in the sunflower movement in Taiwan, which has obviously had a massive impact in the direction of Taiwan. Can you tell us some stories about what that was like? Yeah, certainly. It was in 2014, March. And around the time, the parliament was refusing to deliberate substantially the so-called cross-strait service and trade agreement, or CSFTA, because of some obscure constitutional reasons. And because the MPs were sort of on strike, so people just occupied the parliament and did the work for them. And so this is a legitimacy theory anyway. And so we always insist that it's a demonstration, but not a protest. It's a demonstration in the sense of demo. We demonstrate to the MPs, if you have a real service trade agreement, you have 20 NGOs, each deliberating from one different angle, like from labor, from environment, and things like that. You can occupy the parliament and have one NGO in each corner of the occupy parliament, and the zero people are kind of neutral, providing communication uh, and real-time transcript of everything and live stream feeds and things like that. So half a million people on the street can actually coalesce in more convergent positions by every day repeating what have we agreed in the previous day, and anyone can enter through the Gazero tools, your company name or the trader in, and see exactly how does the service and trade agreement affects them. So it's evidence-based conversation around 20 different angles of the society. And every day we inch toward consensus a little bit more. So by the end of three weeks, we have five demands that are solidified. We know that it's the people's will. And the head of parliament actually accepted it. And so the victory uh, was in occupiers and people see for the first time that you can really do collaborative governance and how the internet's way of gaining legitimacy, which is by radical transparency, actually translate into everyday life as well. 
That sounds incredible because I remember around that time there was the Occupy movement and one of the things that people kept on saying was, you know, what do you want? And there was this real narrative about not being able to come out with substantive demands. So it's really cool that you managed to land on those five and have them accepted. That's an amazing story. Your ministry has helped come up with Taiwan's eight-year digital nation plan. Can you tell us something that you're particularly excited to see delivered as part of that eight-year plan? Start with something really, really simple, which is broadband as human right. It is Dr. Tsai Ing-wen's presidential promise. So anywhere in Taiwan, be it in indigenous or rural or faraway islands, if you don't have 10 megabits per second, it's my fault. And kind of foundation of everything. Because if you have broadband as human right, you can build the new curriculum that emphasize learning that is could be by distance learning, it could be by AI-assisted learning, it could be by personal AI that you just grow, co-evolve. With the students, you can design curriculums that are fully interactive and you can have teleworking workforces and so on. If you don't have broadband as human right, you leave part of your people behind. Right, so I would just start with this really simple thing, which is broadband and access as human right. And if they, in some rural or indigenous places, don't have tablets and so on, we also have library programs that provide them for free, and we renew that every three years. And so, yeah, we start with something really simple like that, and we just deliver it this year. One of the things that we're really interested in on the One Team Gov podcast is about differences in digital economies across the world. Do you think there are any unique challenges that Taiwan faces in terms of digital and technology? In Taiwan, just this year, we passed the Indigenous Transitional Justice Act and then the Hakka Act, and in a couple months, also the National Languages Act. So we used to have one national language, and very soon we'll have 22 national languages, including the Taiwan Sign Language. And so the act basically says if you want to learn about astronomy in Sakilaya, the education system needs to deliver that. And so this is something that's very core to the heart of many Taiwanese people because we're both in an East Asian cultural circle, but we're also the east side of Taiwan, the 16 indigenous Asian, and we're all part of the Astronesian Pacific Island culture as well. So both are Taiwan. And it's important in our truth and reconciliation process that we have, for example, the Open Government Participation Office's training material, which is a comic <laughs> that is available in First Nation languages, which is also the drive of our administrative spokesperson. So I think one of the unique challenges is that how can we make digital respond to the real needs of people who gets included as first-class citizens and not someone who is so-called vulnerable, so-called disadvantaged, but we can just turn their wisdoms into the digital and have digital to be in service of social innovation, not the other way around. And so we devised a lot of unique ways, uh, for example, the sandbox system that allowed anyone to pinpoint a social need and break the rule or even law for uh, a year and for people to see that it really is making a societal impact net positive and for us to merge it then back into the regulation and the law system. So we're doing a lot of innovation around the need of both truth and reconciliation and just the simple fact that we now have to also consider augmented intelligence and self-driving vehicles as members of the society and we need to be inclusive of them too. Wow, that is an insight into inclusion that I never would have expected to get from this. That's so fascinating. Thank you. So you're the first digital minister and you're one of the first young ministers and the first post-gender minister. 
That's right. Do you think it gives you any different insights to be first all the time? Well, I think having gone through two puberties does enable my mind to empathize better with people's experiences. And after dropping out of junior high, I also spent quite some time in the indigenous lands in the first nations of Atayaga. And I think that also enables me to, to see those gender in a, in a way that is very different from the mainstream Western or Eastern binary system, because in many nations, First Nations in Taiwan, it's not just as the gender, it's the gender irrelevance a part of it. And so, yeah, I think these cultural backgrounds really lets me see the world through the lens of different cultural backgrounds of people and also enables me to sympathize and empathize with, say, rivers and animals who cannot vote but can now talk through the voices of, for example, the so-called internet of things we turn it into internet of beings and enable us to empathize with, say, a river. In New Zealand, part of the Maori culture, they give the river a personhood so they can sit in a board. And, of course, someone from the crown and someone from the Maori stand as speakers for the river, but they can speak for the river because the river speaks through the sensors network that makes people visualize and in a gut feeling know that the river is being calmed because uh, of some actions being done in a way that has externality. So I think digital also enables us to uh, listen to pluralities for even non-human beings. And that's also a big part in reconciling our more Western worldview with the indigenous worldview. One of the other experiences you mentioned earlier was that you would identify as an anarchist. Yeah, conservative anarchist. Conservative anarchist, okay. That's not something that we typically associate with being in government. How do you reconcile those two worlds? I'm kind of at a Lagrange point between the civil society and the government system. So I always say I work with the cabinet, but I don't work for the cabinet. I work with the people and not for the people. Uh, and so that's the Lagrange point. The reason why is that my mandate is crowdsourced. Back in 2016, September, when I get the appointment of being a digital minister, I was still uh, working with, not for Apple at the time, <laughs> and I gave them 30-day notice. But during that 30 days, I basically did a ask me anything uh, publicly on a platform called Westlife. Anyone can ask me questions, including journalists and our foreign counterparts, but I only answer publicly. And when I make any answer, it's sent to the inbox to thousands of people so they can ask follow-up questions. And so after one month of public consultation, we settle on three main things that people really want me to hold as a compact, not a contract, with the government. And the three things are voluntary association, meaning I give no orders, I take no orders, location independence, so I can be anywhere and my staff can be anywhere, but we're still working, so teleworking, location independence. And finally, radical transparency. So anything I can see, I can publish for the public interest. But of course, as a natural consequence, I cannot be part of any national secret or you know national confidential information. So if they take a military drill, I just take a day off. Otherwise, any meeting that I chair, I get to publish radically transparent transcripts. And after 10 days of editing, if it's a journalist, or 10 working days, if it's public service, the nuance here is very important because it enables the people to see the why of policymaking, not just the what of the delivery, and enables the credit to be shared with the career public service, because previously the deal was pretty bad, right? If you get something right, your minister gets the credit. 
if you do wrong, the minister blames you. And so innovation is kind of hard to happen without radical transparency, especially across silos. But now with radical transparency, it's the other way around. If by responding to people's needs, the career public service gets on some really innovative idea, people see it right away after 10 working days. Even if the minister says no afterwards, the people can pick up and run it through social enterprises or civic act. But if it doesn't work out, then the digital minister takes all the blame because I'm the only minister doing the same. And so in this kind of way, we enable the public service to innovate in a way that reduces the risk of everybody. And I think that is at the core of my theory of change, which is making sure that the current public service can always say, okay, we try something really crazy and it fails. It's all just fine. <laughs> One of the things we hear over and over again on the One Team Gov show is about problems of hierarchies and silos in government and how it produces a lot of drag and and problems. How is the work that you're doing with radical transparency helping to break those hierarchies? And do you have anything else that you're doing that you could share with our listeners? When I joined the cabinet, my staff is uniquely composed of at most one person from each ministry. So we have 34 vertical ministries, 34 vertical ministers, and one of the eight horizontal ministers, meaning that we're kind of above and coordinating other ministries, vertical ministries. And so I talked to the Secretary General saying, I'm going to ask for volunteers from all 34 ministries to join my staff, but because so many people want to join my office. I only poach one class from each ministry. So technically, I can have 34 staff. At the moment, it's 22. But having 22 people, each coming from very different background, because each ministry is one different value, so many different values, but nobody dominate one another. Their salary is still being paid by their ministry, and they still work toward their ministry's agenda. But what I do is provide a safe space for people to propose things and to just talk in a way that's what we call working out loud meaning that every day we have stand-up meetings, we have a weekend board, we have a system called Sandstorm IO, that cybersecurity hardened that enables us to run any app written by the public service for the public service. And so basically all the 34 ministries people get to propose ideas that are good for not just their ministry, but also other ministries as well. And if people decide it's a good thing, then I absorb the risk, I talk to their ministers, and I make things happen. And I share the credit back with the ministers. If it doesn't work out, well, it's no harm done because this is just one of the sandboxes within the cabinet. So we're kind of like policy lab in the UK, but it has much more political mandate to try true cross-ministerial things, not just design and consultation, but all the way to delivery. That sounds like an incredibly fun team to work in. I'd yes. love to. <laughs> okay, so more fun stuff now. We read that you enjoy troll hugging. Yeah. What is that and how do you do it? It's my hobby. (laughs) Trolls are people who crave attention because they don't get sufficient hugs and kisses from the physical world. They crave attention by upsetting people on the internet. And so the way that I do troll hugging is that if people mention my name on social media in a way that tries to raise my attention... I only respond to the parts that are authentic. So say they post 100 words and then just five words of which can be construed as constructive. Then just reply carefully to those five words. And it has two effects. The first, it teaches people that it's possible to have long-term relational conversations because the trolls previously only have transactional conversations. They upset people, people get upset, they get attention. 
but it's like junk food because it's not relational. They wake up the next morning still feeling very empty and throw some other people, right? But because I very carefully reply to the part that are authentic to their experience, they learn that only by responding authentically do they get the minister's attention. And then they get to have a real dialogue and relationship with me. And I also invite them to the Social Innovation Lab in my office hours every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. So anyone can come and visit me and provide the degree to have a transcript published online. They can just come and have a talk and give me a hug. And so basically, I just attract the trolls to review their authentic selves and just come to the Social Innovation Lab and we can go create something. How many of them actually do that to your office hours? I think half of them actually reform and half of them just find it's not fun anymore. So the success rate is around 50%. (laughs) Speaking of Twitter, perhaps not one of your troll friends, but we ask everyone that we speak to to help recommend some things for our listeners. Could you start us off with a Twitter account that we could follow? One you love, yay. (laughs) That's an easy one. Thank you. Personally, we have a Taiwan Pedis Twitter account that we're not using very much because uh, so far I've been just tweeting with my own handle, Audrey T, and all our staff members are tweeting under their own handle also. But we're thinking of reactivating the Taiwan Pedis account. Pedis stands for Public Digital Innovation Space. So if you can follow Taiwan Pedis, uh, we'll figure out something. Great. And what about a podcast? Oh, one thing that the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I don't follow that much podcasts, to be very honest. I attended the Rebel Cities uh, podcast, where they try to build horizontal municipalism. and they seem like a pretty decent podcast. But that's only if you believe in municipalism and want to join the Rebel Cities. <laughs> Maybe quite a niche podcast there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right, and a bit? My favorite book is Denigan's Lake, but I always recommend that. It's such a time consumer. <laughs> Recently, there's a pretty good book called New Power. It's very accessible. It explains the way that how the horizontal power works, but also explains the horizontal power as a value. The value and the method don't always go together. There's some people with very old power, vertical values, but using new power methodologies to paint things and to make things happen. And there's also people using very old ways to cheerlead the new values of horizontalism. So I think the book New Power really explains this kind of message really well, and it has a lot of examples. And finally, a charity or an enterprise social that you could recommend? Enterprise Social was my private sector work, so I'm working (laughs) on social enterprise now, really companies with a clear mission. I'm going to recommend Mozilla Corporation. Mozilla Corporation is we closely partner with them to deliver the indigenous languages, automatic translation, voice recognition, and so on through the Common Voice project. After returning to Taiwan next week, actually, I'm going to read aloud two hours of corpus into the Common Voice so that people can recognize that it's possible to donate different accents, different dialects, different languages of Taiwan, and have the AI system not forcing anyone to speak perfect Mandarin or perfect Hakka or perfect Holok, and still being able to converse in their native way with the AI-assisted speech system. And everything is donated in the grid on Common Zero, which means that it's in public domain, everybody can use it, including and series of the world. Uh, and so I think it's a really good innovation, and it's 
brainstormed and designed Taiwan. So I'm very proud that Mozilla Corporation can work with Taiwan in this way, and all the earnings of that corporation gets back to the Mozilla Foundation anyway. So it's a really good structure of a hybrid charity, mission-led social enterprise that we can say the open source world actually reconciles with the social entrepreneurship world, and that we have a really working example, an international recognizable brand at that. Audrey, we've heard some fantastic stories. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Awesome stories. Okay, cool. Thank you. Thank you very much. What a really unusual interview, Kamala. What did you reckon? Oh my God, Audrey definitely is goals. I have to say, it's such an amazing story about her basically getting into computer science at the age of 15 and then retiring at 30 and then moving into the public sector. I just feel like someone should probably make a film about her immediately. What did you think? Yeah, absolutely. I remember when she was talking about how she was at junior high school and she proposed dropping out at the age of 15 because all of her textbooks were out of date and she could find much better stuff on the internet anyway. I thought that was brilliant. It really reminded me of when we interviewed Pran and he was talking about the craft of teaching and how young minds today think really differently in the age of the internet. Audrey pretty much personifies what it's like to be in that generation in Taiwan where they had democracy and the internet arrive at the same time. All the stories that came out of her early life and her early career were brilliant. I was really hoping for another Martha Lane Fox drinking game when she said that she co-founded a tech company at the beginning of the dot-com boom, lastminute.com alike. It seemed like she'd gone through a huge range of different organizations and social enterprises. It was just so inspiring to see that someone like that has ended up in government, such a non-traditional route, and has really demonstrated to the Taiwanese democracy the way of doing things differently. Yeah, definitely. I love that question you asked about her being an anarchist. And she was like, yeah, I'm an anarchist and I'm working in government. It was so interesting to hear about her perspective on government coming from that background. I loved how in her early career, she leveraged the work that she'd been doing in the open source community in order to not only financially support herself, but also move forward a lot of the software that we use today without even thinking about it or without even seeing it. In terms of what you were just saying about showing the Taiwanese government how to do things differently, the bit that really stood out to me was when she talked about how you could choose a specific law and get sign-off to break it for a year. They would test to see if there were any major differences that came out of that or any learnings that came out of that. And it just made me think that that was a really interesting way to test out new policies in a safe environment and see whether some of the things that we have on the books today are out of date. Absolutely. There were lots of phrases in there that we've spoken about lots on this show before, such as radical transparency and collaborative governance. And these kinds of principles we're trying to push for in a lot of governments and democracies around the world right now. But we can see how that was played out for real in this testing and learning scenario. And also with the Sunflower Movement occupation of government, you could understand what it's like to experiment with different forms of democracy without a lot of the history behind it that some of our Western world countries have. When Audrey talked about radical transparency, it was really interesting to see what it would actually be like. And it made me think, 
it's such an incredibly brave thing to do, especially in this age of social media where we're constantly editing and re-editing ourselves. Like this podcast will be edited. We're often really worried about what we're saying or doing and if it's the right or wrong thing. It, it will really take a leap to bring about that kind of transparency in other governments. You have to really put your neck on the line in order to do that. But it's so interesting to see. What I really loved was this sense of taking responsibility that we haven't often seen from our other studies around the world. For example, she talked about broadband as a human right and why that is so important to things like learning and being able to work remotely and not leaving people behind in society. And she then went on to say, if you do not have broadband in Taiwan, that is my fault. And this ownership of problems and ownership of trying to make sure that everyone has the same access to the tools that they need to participate in society was really impressive. She said this other phrase, which was digital in service of social innovation, not the other way around. Couldn't have put that any better in terms of how to do digital and inclusion in the same space and push things forward. That was probably my favorite part of the whole interview. She also talked about working with the cabinet, not for the cabinet, which is another good example of what you were just talking about. This idea that ultimately the goal is to work for the people of Taiwan and she supports the government in order to do that. But anything that deviates from the ideals she holds, so for example, privacy around military testing, she'll just bow out of and take a day off of. That was an interesting tidbit. One of the fun parts of the interview was talking about how she handles internet trolls. It was actually really constructive. Strategies for managing trolls, you would imagine, would be things like getting a really good argument back to them or somehow engaging them in a way that was more clever than the way that they put things forward. But she genuinely reaches out to them and tries to engage them in the constructive parts of their conversation. And calling this troll hugging, I just think it was brilliant to try to not dismiss or not embarrass or deride them in any way, but really to welcome people to come even into the labs that they work in with social innovation and try to co-create something like that. That was really, really fun and unusual. Yeah, when I first read about that, I honestly thought it was some kind of joke. <laughs> so it was great when we asked the question that she had a really good and constructive answer for that. That was really, really fun and interesting. How much do you want to be a part of her department? Oh my gosh, so much. When she says things like swapping social enterprise and it being enterprise social and all the work that she did in the private sector, the fun that that brought to things. A lot of the projects she spoke about, she was saying things like the beginning of the Mozilla Foundation were going to be around 10-year projects. And if people weren't having fun whilst they were doing it, then it wasn't going to last and it wasn't going to become a thing in the open source world. And it feels like she really brought that into the space that they work. I'm not surprised at all that they get a huge amount of applications to join that team because I would absolutely be on the list. Yeah, I loved how she talked about when she constructed it, she took a representative from every single different department, which is a model I don't think we've spoken about or seen in other countries. The idea about having shared responsibility across government also shining a light on those government departments when you see that they're doing good work and sharing some of that limelight as a way to continue that and to shout out about the work they've done. That was so good. I'd love to see that modeled in some other countries. It's easy when you're in government because it's so big and unwieldy to break down into departmental tribes. Totally taking that off the table is an innovation in itself. It definitely ties back to One Team Gov principles. And it seems like what One Team Gov are trying to cut across in terms of organizational silos, Audrey and her team have managed to do by design from the beginning. 
lot of the ways in which they work are very much aligned to the values that we're trying to talk about here. And it's a completely different way of doing it, which has recognized that as an issue up front and tried to solve it from the beginning. Sometimes, to be honest, it feels for us like we're trying to undo these bad patterns, but they're not setting them up in the first place. Maybe the next iteration could be international. <laughs> One team gov global all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> Wishing you happy holidays from a very sunny southern hemisphere. And from here in London, we will be back with our next episode on the 11th of January. So you've got a little bit of a break over the holiday period. Hope you have a fantastic time and look forward to seeing you in the new year. And that's it from the One Team Gov Show. If you enjoyed this episode, you can download, listen and subscribe through all major platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Pocket Casts, Blubbery, Spreaker, Acast, Radio Public, Player FM, Overcast and Podbean. We're also available on Amazon Alexa. See you next time. See you next time.